morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 1, verse 19 through 28. And as we all remain standing, I will read now God's holy word, John chapter 1, verse 19 through 28. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. But do you, what do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And this is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. In the popular TV show, The Voice, I think a majority of you guys know what this show is on NBC, amateur singers try to gain the attention of three or four, I can't remember, highly qualified music judges who are sitting in these comical, huge, big chairs facing the opposite direction from the stage. And the judges throughout the season are competing against one another, trying to buy and recruit the top singers throughout the season. The catch is, of course, they can't actually see the singer until they commit to buzzing in for them. Now, I, enjoy, I really do enjoy the, the concept, especially like the first, you know, beginning episodes. They're not judging on looks or presence on the stage. They are strictly judging them by their quote-unquote voice. And today, we finally get into the narrative portion of the Gospel of John. And we've been introduced to him uh, briefly in the prologue, the introduction, verse 1 through 18. He is called John the Baptist, who says of himself in verse 23 that he is the voice prophesied from the book of Isaiah. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And in the spiritual calculus of everything, good, it's, it's good that the voice in the wilderness wasn't based on looks either, <laughs> if you get my drift. John the Baptist and other Gospels described as living in the wilderness, dressed, dressed in clothes made from camel hair. He fed off locusts and honey. Now, in today's message, as we go through the text, please remind yourself that this is not a, a prescriptive text. Most of you are familiar with prescriptive versus descriptive when interpreting a passage. As in, what we read here is not meant to be copied by us in, in a formula sense, following a prescription, but rather John the Apostle is just describing what happened in the course of redemptive history. So please don't meet me for lunch next week, dressed up in camel's hair, eating your nice cicadas. It's not gonna be a good look. Please spare me of that. And none of us surely is going to be John the Baptist part two. Jesus has thankfully already come and completed his finished work. But what we will see in the life of John the Baptist are core principles that we can emulate in regards to our witness to Jesus Christ. We're gonna use that term frequently through the sermon. Or as some of your Bible translations have as, as a heading, the ESV says, 
uh, our testimonies, the testimony of John the Baptist. So let's dig into our first narrative of the Gospel of John after our five or so weeks in the important prologue. We really took our time in verse 1 through 18, but now we're getting into more narrative pieces of the Gospel, more uh, recounting the story of what happened in the life and the ministry and the work of Jesus the Christ. So look at verse 19 again, just a couple of verses, and this is the testimony of God. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the capital P prophet? And he answered, no. Later, we're gonna see that John the Baptist, and this is where he gets his namesake, was baptizing people in the river. And that was an odd thing in their day. For us, it, you know, okay, you go to Lake Michigan and oh, this church or that church, they're doing baptism on this Sunday or whatever. That's, that's kind of normal for us. But back then, this was a very odd thing to do. It was only prophesied about from hundreds of years ago, more on that detail later. But if someone is starting to baptize people, the spiritual elites from the epicenter of Jerusalem, it says, the text says, better find out what in the world is going on. Now, one helpful, helpful note I found is that when John uses the term, quote, the Jews in his book, he is often most likely referring to a certain select group of Jewish people. Obviously, Jesus, John the Apostle, John the Baptist, they were all Jewish. But the, quote, unquote, the Jews, in air quotes, are, are namely the elite or those that eventually and continually will reject and oppose Jesus. So John has already known all this, and he's just recounting uh, who is doing the inquiring. Another helpful tip I, I read and studied to understand the Gospel of John as a whole is that the Apostle John is setting up this narrative as a grand trial in this spiritual courtroom where many witnesses arise in the whole uh, Gospel of John, in the storyline to defend the truth of the real identity, ministry, and work of Jesus the Christ. And so John the Baptist, being that first very critical, important witness in the story, is in the courtroom now. And who are the main prosecutors for the majority of the book? Well, it's, again, the religious elites, the high priests who are here, the Levites, the Pharisees will be introduced to us soon. They always had something against Jesus. They were threatened. They were scared deep down. They didn't want a good thing uh, going awry in terms of their power and influence. And this Jesus is going to come onto the scene like a meteor striking the earth. They're startled. They're annoyed and again frightened. So they put John the Baptist on the witness stand, so to say, and bombard him with rapid fire questions. Who are you? And then it says in verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Scholars note that this type of repetition in ancient texts and ancient cultures is a way to say, let me just put three exclamation points after my statement, I am not the Christ. So they say, then are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Now John the Baptist and other gospels is definitely tied to the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy about the return of Elijah, I'm gonna just read that. You don't have to turn there. Malachi 4, 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And of course, any of you can cross-reference this and will remember that Jesus in Matthew 11 and then in Mark 9 alludes to John the Baptist as the fulfillment of Elijah coming again. But in the realm, but it's not in the physical form, of course but in the realm of the spirit of Elijah. Elijah is not coming back again, but in the spirit of Elijah. 
John the Baptist has come, said of him in Luke 1, 17, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, talking about the birth of John the Baptist. So hopefully you're tracking along with that. And then they ask, are you the prophet, capital P? And he answered, no, again. Scholars note that in the first century, people were literally waiting someone like Moses to come again. Some of you guys know this reference, prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18.15, someone who's going to come to rescue them. And so people, thousands of years later, are clamoring, is this, is this the, the prophet that Moses was promising? Because we're so sinful? Because we're so wretched? No, that's not the motive that these elites had. They probably interpreted the capital P, the prophet, to save them geopolitically. They're under the Roman kind of uh, rule and uh, the threat. And so someone's going to come and restore us. That's why the elites are so interested in seeing who this John the Baptist really is. <clears throat> Excuse me. Is he their long-awaited political savior? Funny, thousands of years later, this happens to us in our context too. John the Baptist is probably saying to them, just you wait. You're going to have one that, that calms you, gives you peace, gives you restoration, but really gives you salvation. He should be enough. But because of sinfulness over the hundreds of years afterwards, including now, people always will clamor for something new, someone new, something new to save them from the present plight or dilemma. Sure, Robin, we'll go to church on Sundays, but really I'm looking for the next thing to take me out of my darkness, to take me out of my angst about culture and social things, to take me away from my depression, to take me away from these dark feelings that I'm having at work or with family life. Yes, I'll go to church on Sundays, but I, I'm really looking for the next thing or the next person or the next ideology or the next celebrity or the next family member even, or even your very close best friend. Someone needs to fill in this gap. And so for the Jews in their day, they were so blind to see that the one true Lamb of God will get into in a couple of weeks, the Savior Messiah was actually upon them that would replace any need for them to keep searching. So pretty much fed up at this point, the religious leader then say, verse 22, look at your Bible. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us, their true motive showing here. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now this, of course, read earlier in our Old Testament passage from Brian, the prophecy of Isaiah that one would be sent ahead of the Messiah to prepare the path for him to come. And I studied and I read that the, the phrase make straight the way or path, we don't really use that fra fra phrasing anymore today. But in ancient context, it was likened to the image was servants or soldiers filling in and patching up uneven ground in the streets or pathways where kings would eventually later travel on. Imagine that job on a hot, sunny day. This is your only job is to fill all these holes. <clears throat> I was in the city last week for a conference with pastors, and I was going up and down, up and down on some of the streets, on the side streets. I, I, <clears throat> I was thinking to myself, I hope the city provides people that make paths straight uh, in the city. It was like an amusement park with all those potholes. But this is what John the Baptist was to do for the Messiah. You get the point. Someone like John the Baptist was to come in the spirit of Elijah 
calling people to believe and repent of their sins, and pointing to the one who could actually remove the penalty of sins from you and me. And so this was John's main purpose and job in life. And he did this so well with enduring faith and courage. And later I'm going to mention utter humility. What a good and critical witness to start the Apostle John's defense of who Jesus is. Yes, later Jesus himself will testify about himself. God the Father testified. His disciples, his, his signs and miracles will point and defend who he is. But at this point, John the Baptist is fulfilling the prophecy to prepare the way. Please look at your Bibles again, and we'll just close out in the last verses. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> now, verse 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. I said we'd be introduced to, to them. They asked them then, why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. I told you that baptism would be a strange thing to just start doing on your own. There were prophecies of one who would come and cleanse his people. Is it him? But if he's not the Christ then, or even Elijah or the capital P prophet, then how could he have the nerve to even think about doing this? And his answer is very telling and really helpful even in our own view of baptism today. That when one gets baptized with water, this is only the sign to something greater. The water actually doesn't cleanse someone, but the water points to the one true savior who can actually remove the damnation of sin, our wretchedness. So John the Baptist was baptizing people to sign or point people to the one who could come to spiritually cleanse. And we get baptized 2,000 years later with water, signing or pointing to the one who has already come to cleanse. So John is saying someone close is going to burst onto the scene and be the real sacrifice to save sinners and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Someone so great, even untying his sandals, is too great of a thing. And some of you get the historical context of that reference. In the ancient times, washing someone's feet was such a lowly task. Just the arid climate and just uh, the, the physicalness of the dirtiness that they're walking on. Untying dirty, smelly sandals was for the lowly servants. But for John the Baptist, he knew he was unworthy to even do that, let alone be the voice out of the wilderness to prepare the path for Jesus. There is so much humility in John the Baptist. If we really think about this a bit, it's deeply humbling and moving. And this person comes, on, comes onto the scene, oh, you don't know him. And some of you will never know him, John the Baptist is, is pretty much implying. Or as we heard in the prologue, will ever be able to receive him or know him. But your hearts, because your hearts remain darkened in unbelief, you do not know him. And this was the Apostle John describing to us, the readers, what took place in the very, very early scenes of Jesus' earthly ministry with John the Baptist preparing the way of faith and repentance and being baptized. But what are the biblical principles we can learn and glean from even some 2,000 years after this took place? And so I wanted to spend some dedicated time on how all this can apply to our daily witness and testimonies before the watching world. And co coincidentally, 
and out of God's provision and providence, our adult Sunday schools are just talking about this very same thing, about missions, about outreach, about praying and, and befriending those who do not know the Lord. And so I have three summary application points. Again, this is not prescriptive from the passage, but simple biblical principles of pointing to Christ as John the Baptist did. Number one is this, learn to develop and embrace your quote-unquote voice. Learn to develop and embrace your voice. Yes, as the Apostle Peter wrote, be prepared with explaining your faith and the hope that you have, of course. But you need to re first realize that you do actually have a voice as a child of God. One author wrote, John the Baptist, of course, is the voice. But we need to remember a voice, uh, as one theologian wrote, a voice is the vehicle by which a word is made known. Jesus is the eternal word, but he enters into our present world in part through our voices. How encouraging is that? Jesus is the eternal word, but he enters into our present world in part through our very own voices. Yes, this is a primary role for preachers and teachers, but obviously we can all in some way share the good news of Jesus Christ, can't we? I know many of you guys do. This is what Paul was alluding to in Romans 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching or sharing the gospel, right? Verse 15, and how they are, are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How many of you came to faith by not just a preacher preaching, but someone who was reading the Bible with you? A Sunday school teacher, perhaps, who worked diligently with you in teaching you about Jesus. I listen to a lot of theologians and pastors, and a lot of them say, okay, well, what is your testimony of faith? Well, I remember Mrs. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so teaching me the fundamentals of the basics of the gospel as a child growing up. Or perhaps it's a family member. Some of you, it was a coworker, a roommate. Oh, we all have voices, brothers and sisters, a voice is the vehicle by which a word is made known. And perhaps many of us here are not taking advantage that we have one, actually. And so you don't have to be eloquent, loud, or charismatic to be a huge influence in someone's life. And so, brothers and sisters, use your voice. Number two is this, testify with your life. Testify with your life. You know, so much of today's passage was on the witness and testimony of John the Baptist. The principle that we can glean is that through faith, he didn't have to cower or, or, or be giving in to the pressures of those around him. He knew what he believed. He was confident that he wasn't the savior and did all that he could to point people to Jesus. Something, something similar then, friends, is at our doorstep, an opportunity, an opportunity to point your little light to the true light. Not just with your voice, as we just mentioned, but also with your life. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a wonderful preacher from uh, England uh, in the previous century, listen to what he wrote about this, and I hope this encourages you. The first great step in evangelizing is that we should start with ourselves and become sanctified. When the man of the world sees that you and I have got something that he obviously has not got, when he finds us calm and quiet when we are taken ill, when he finds we can smile in the face of death, when he finds about us a poise, a balance, 
an equanimity and a loving, gentle quality, he will begin to take notice. He will say, that man has got something, and he will begin to inquire as to what it is, and he will want it. And we, we share a variation of this all the time here, that by the way that we live, the manner of our lives, may that be the first step for, for someone to say, what is it about you? It's the same thing I, I think I shared before about my sister who works in DC at a firm and she's kind of higher up in, in leadership there. And this is years ago where someone, uh, a colleague of her came in, closed the door behind her and said, hey, I know you're going through something really difficult right now, but how are you so calm? You have this peace about you when I know that your life right now is upside down. And so my sister got to share where that calm and that peace and that gentleness and that serenity can come from. Of course, we have emotions and life is up full of ups and downs, but overall, when someone can see there's something different, I would react so negatively because this coworker was going through a very difficult time. Live a life that would make people wonder why you are the way you are. It's not, you're not gonna be perfect, but something must be different in you at the end of the day. Imagine walking down a busy market in the olden times with dirty alleys and trash all around and in a sea of gray and soot all around, yet you walk inside with color. You walk the streets with a garment of, let's say, beautiful flowers around your neck. Someone will eventually say, what's up with that? Who are you? What are you about? This is the way we are to live. And the apostles speak on our conduct in the world in various passages in the New Testament to not cut down, to not malign, to not put down with vitriolic speech, but to speak words seasoned with grace. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. 1 Peter 2, 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, which is just kind of another way of saying non-believers, honorable. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is your life as a testimony. Not just pre-recorded, I could share the gospel in 30 seconds and then just be on my way. But no, it's much more difficult to present a testimony of being transformed by the grace of God lived out every day. So focus more on pointing to the marvelous Jesus rather than scoring points in an argument with someone who has a veil over their spiritual eyes. You have to understand they don't understand. They do not know him. And so obviously they're going to come back at you. They're going to have all these arguments and frustrations and anger. And we show compassion then to be honorable, to be courteous and present the gospel in and through your life with peaceability and love. That doesn't mean we compromise what God has said or the gospel, but we do so with truth in love and speaking and living in front of those who are watching you. So focus on showcasing how you've been transformed rather than your frustration with people that haven't been transformed yet because you once were in that same plight. We need to pray in that same way too. Many, many Christians get all frightened by the thought of sharing your faith, but as Rick Phillips writes, a PCA pastor and theologian, he says, start by witnessing with the manner of your life. And that's referring back to Martin Lloyd-Jones, quote. Speaking of Rick Phillips, who actually pastored at, at a church in Philadelphia where I interned at over a decade ago, 
He wrote about this story of his own conversion, that as an unbeliever, he moved into an apartment in probably Center City, Philadelphia, and as he was moving in, he noticed that a lady was moving out, and she had all these boxes, and he carried one maybe final box of books to her car, and she said, thank you, and then I think she got into her car, and she was probably really nervous, and she just said as she drove off, if you're looking for a good church, there's one or two, three blocks away from here. This is the church that he later then pastored uh, at and, and where I interned at. But at that point, he was not converted, and he was visibly annoyed at even the suggestion. And Rick Phillips was writing that she, she might have driven off with some discouragement. Oh, I botched that. All I could muster up is there's a good church a couple of blocks away. I should have been bolder. I should have had all my theological categories correct. I, I should have had all my gotcha questions and answers ready to converse with them. But she didn't know this, but later Rick went to that church, reluctantly probably, but he did go, and he heard Jim Boyce preach the gospel. And he heard the gospel preach, and eventually he was saved and converted and believed in her savior, Jesus. He concluded by saying, quote, you may think that you are just one voice and that your witness doesn't matter. But if Jesus is the word that your voice brings, and if he is one you know and who is living in you, then your witness is mighty to put down strongholds and lead dying sinners to salvation, close quote. What a good needed encouragement for all of us that this is not a, um, that we are to point to Jesus. Number three is this, finally, this is not about you. Of course, the Apostle Paul reminds us that we boast only in Christ and not ourselves because we are not to attract people to ourselves, but to Christ. And one theologian made some helpful points about making your sharing of faith, your disciple making all about the, uh, you know, uh, it's not about all the talents and gifts that you have rather than pointing people to the actual Savior, Jesus. And I thought, this is so needed for me, but also, I think, for our church to hear this. I, I was, again, with some pastors last week in the city at a conference. A group of eight of us, we're in a circle. We're just sharing encouragements and discouragements at our, at our local kind of ministries and churches. But it was amazing to hear so many confess, and this is not just at this conference, but so many other conversations, that many confess, I have a savior complex. I want to control everything. I'm the one conduit that's going to make a congregant be transformed and be changed. And they were confessing this, that this is not the way to be. But they were confessing that, oh, I need to be this and that for every member in some context or every person we're trying to reach out into our world. But it was never meant to be about us. We are to point others to the true Savior, not to the grandeur of your ministry or of your speaking abilities or your prowess with the scriptures or your long list of good deeds. So let me say this again. You are nobody's Savior. This is not just for preachers or pastors. This is for all of us where we can fall into this complex. You can only point. You can only testify. You can only witness to the one who can then truly save and transform. John the Baptist, with all the temptation to float with the praise and fanfare he was getting and all the crowds surrounding him and all the people coming to him to be baptized, he humbled himself and pointed to the one who he was not even fit to untie Jesus' dirty sandals. That's a spiritual principle to put into practice every day, brothers and sisters. 
But when we point to ourselves over and over again and buy into our self-importance, well, as Dr. Jim Boyce wrote in his commentary on John, at that point, you've lost your witness. You've lost your testimony. Your testimony to Jesus stops right there. And so then, friends, will you take the witness stand? Will you take the witness stand to speak in defense of our loving Savior, not with uh, a professionalism or an eloquence or articulation that just blows everybody away, but are you willing to get up on the stand that you have a voice, that you have a life lived before Christ and others? And so if you have a voice, use it in faith. Use it as you're united to Christ. Let's, as a church, collaboratively and corporately use it well. Let's bow our heads and pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for stories like this where we can see the real history of how your son Jesus came onto the scene in his earthly ministry. That in your sovereign care and your providence, that you raised up people to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. People like John the Baptist to come and prepare the way to be the voice from the wilderness, to call people to repentance and faith and belief for the one that would come and be the source of our salvation. Help us 2,000 years later, even though we know we're not gonna be John the Baptist, we know we're not gonna be an apostle, but that we have an opportunity to have our little voices actually have an impact in people close to us or people that we pass by, just like that story of Rick Phillips. Father, help us, even though we're not perfect yet, to be bold with our voices, to be bold with the manner of living before people inside of these walls and outside. And may the gentleness and the kindness and the confidence that we have in the gospel and because we're being transformed bit by bit, oh, that may that attract someone to learn more about who we are. And may we not point to ourselves, but point them to the Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.